Well, good morning, everyone, and uh, it's great to see you and be back again. And congratulations to Justin for um, uh, that baptism. That is so special. And many of us do remember the day that we were baptized. I was baptized when I was about 17 years old. I was the president of the students' council in my high school. And uh, I remember inviting a bunch of my buddies from school to come and watch that event. They were just completely gobsmacked. They had no idea what was going on. <laughs> and what an opportunity for me to, you know, and I, you know, I was living out my faith on, in the high school for sure. But uh, to actually see that moment, and uh, it was a very powerful moment for me personally, for my friends, for my family. And all of us who have gone through those waters of baptism know that this is such a strategic moment in all of our lives. And so that was really special to see this morning. And the other thing I want to say is, for those of you who have come especially to see that baptism and don't normally come here, I apologize for what I'm going to say. I, am, I was given the task of preaching the book of Job. And so I apologize now for... Oh, an assignment that I am finding daunting, let alone you people who have to listen to it. So, uh, but hopefully along the way, we will, uh, we will find something helpful and uh, learn a few things along the way. Uh, one other little note, uh, just to let you know, um, I will be at the Power to Change uh, gathering uh, this coming Friday evening up at the University of Guelph. And so if we have any university students here and you're not norm you don't normally attend the Power Change uh, event and you've got nothing to do on Friday night, come on by. Um, another very easy topic for me, um, how do we find Christ in the Old Testament? And they've given me 30 minutes to talk about that. <laughs> you got to know, that, that class is three hours. Um, so that ought to be a lot of fun. I don't know how we'll wind up with these topics, but, uh, you know, anyhow, we will do our best. And uh, that's a great group up there, by the way. That, they're fabulous, the power to change people. They're, they, are, they love the Lord, and they have a great testimony and a good witness on campus. And it's, it's about the third or fourth time I've been there with them. And I kind of picked up where your former pastor, Steve West, uh, used to do some of that. And uh, it's, it's really great. I really do enjoy going. And... Going to my alma mater, yeah, uh, Earth Science, 1974, University of Guelph, just in case some of you didn't know that. In one of the best presentations of the book of Job, William Sanford Lesore, David Allen Hubbard, and Frederick uh, William Bush write this, have you considered my servant Job? The pointed question that Yahweh put to Satan triggered the 42 chapters of suffering, complaint, argument, and response that comprise the book of Job. Few stories in the literature of human experience have had, have had such power to stretch minds, tax consciences, and expand visions as does Job's. All who witness the disaster in the land of Uz eavesdrop on the conversations about Yahweh's court, 
arbitrate the debate between Job and his friends or shiver at the voice of the whirlwind will have their basic beliefs challenged. One's view of divine sovereignty and freedom, as well as one's picture of human suffering and arrogance and integrity, will be altered. There is both, this is both the danger and blessing of this book. All right, I am a professor at Heritage College and Seminary, and every class begins with a quiz. A quiz. The first question should have been, how many of you read the book of Job this week? Wow, I am impressed. Good for you. Half of it. <laughs> That's about all some of us can get through. All right. So there should be a little quiz. Is there a quiz up there? Are we throwing it up there? All right. Okay, so here's a quiz to begin. Don't, don't answer out loud, all right? Or, well, no, don't answer out loud. All right, so we begin with a quiz. Number one, what book is the oldest book in the Old Testament? Don't answer, all right? Just leave it. Okay, question number two. The book of Job is referred to by what two biblical authors? And question number three. Job is called God's servant how many times in the book of Job? All right, this is your entrance exam into heaven. <laughs> and Peter is going to ask you these questions at the pearly gates, so you better get them now. I was going to say the entrance exam into heritage, but that would also work too. Okay, so true or false? The book of Job is the oldest book in the Bible. True or false? The answer is false. A lot of people think that it is. Job was probably written in the time of Solomon, probably along the same time as, say, the book of Ecclesiastes or Proverbs. It's a wisdom book. Probably the oldest book in the Old Testament is Exodus. I believe that Moses was the first writer in the Old Testament, and the first books that he wrote were, of course, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So then you ask the question, which one of those did he write first? And I think he wrote his own story first. That's, his, that's the book of Exodus. And then afterwards, he told the people about Genesis and all the things that went on there, and then Leviticus came along later in Numbers and Deuteronomy. So. All right, I won't ask how many got that one right or wrong. Second, Job is referred to by what two biblical writers? And the answer to that is Ezekiel and James. Okay, Ezekiel 14 talks about Job and Noah and Daniel. And then James, I'm actually going to cite a little later in the sermon this morning about the whole notion of endurance. How many times is Job in the book called God's servant? The answer is six, two at the beginning, and four at the end. That's important because to be called a servant of the Lord is in fact one of the highest affirmations that anyone can receive. We all know the phrase, well done, well, well done, thou good and faithful servant. We're talking about the same kind of category. 
And in fact, Jesus himself in the prophecy of Isaiah is called the servant of the Lord. So when we read the fact that six times, two at the beginning, have you seen my servant Job? And four times at the end, my servant Job, my servant Job, my servant Job, my servant Job, after all that he had been through, is called God's servant. That gives me great hope. Because as I watch Job languish throughout this book, even in spite of all the pain that he went through and the frustration and all the kinds of things that we see there, he is still called God's servant. And that gives us all hope. All right. So what is this book? What is this wisdom book? Why is it in our Bible? What do we learn? What are we learning about God ourselves in the world? And by the way, those are the three questions that the Bible answers. Who is God? Who are we? And what is the world? Those are the only three questions the Bible answers. Lots of questions under each of those, but those are the only three questions the Bible answers. Who is God? Who are we? And what is the world? So what are we going to learn about Job in those three domains? Let me tell you the story. Here is the story. Now, if you want to open your Bibles to Job chapter 1 and kind of run through with me, I'm going to scream through the book, 42 chapters in about eight minutes. All right? So, uh, but I, I, I'm, maybe, maybe it would be best just to listen. Here's the story. Job is a believer in the true God of Israel. He's a Gentile living in this land called Uz or Uz, U-Z. And this is a region we believe is in the south part of Israel, uh, in the area we would know back in biblical times as the area of Edom. Seems that he lived about the same time as Abraham, about 2000 BC, and he's a wealthy man, and he's highly respected in his community for his wisdom and his integrity. In the opening chapters, um, in the heavens, the angels come and give an account of their doings to God, and someone by the name of Satan, the Hashatan, uh, is among them. We have no idea where he comes from. No idea. Text doesn't tell us. And he accuses God of holding Job's loyalty and faith because he has prospered him. So God challenges that ad accusation and gives him over to Job twice. First, take away his family and possessions, and then his health. And here's the key. God's sovereignty and freedom to act as he deems fit is evident in this move, and it is a critical aspect of the book of Job. And even when it is in a debate with Satan, God's sovereignty and freedom to act as he deems fit sets the tone of the entire book. The scene then now moves directly to Job. He's lost his family and possessions and his wealth, but he won't give up on his faith. He states, naked, I, naked came, I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And even his wife tries to convince him to curse God and die. Then we come to chapter 3. And this chapter is a passionate and angry lament for his pain. The why questions are everywhere. Why, 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 why? And he wishes that he had never been born. 
Then three friends appear on the scene. Eliphaz, who is a mystic, Bildad, who is a traditionalist, and Zophar, who is a dogmatist. And for 23 chapters, we hear them accuse Job that he was suffering because he had sinned. The traditional understanding of why people suffering are suffering the judging hand of God. And they call on him again and again to repent. And Job, often not very patiently, answers them in turn. And he challenges them and he challenges God. But his faith is strong. He calls for an umpire. And then he says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, then in my flesh I will see God. And Job had an understanding of some sort or other of a resurrection that he would someday, someday enjoy. But this section of 23 chapters is exhaustive and exhausting. And some of you said that you got halfway through the book. I can understand why and where you quit. After Job's final speech, and it's really interesting because each of them have three cycles. You get Eliphaz and then Job and then Bildad and then Job. They go around three times, except for Zophar. He only goes twice because the time Zophar gets the third shot at it, he's quit. He's done. I've had it. Nothing more to say. And he's, he's, he just got, the end, got to the end of it all. And uh, Job answers him. After that, those cycles, and uh, exhaustive and exhausting, Job defending himself constantly, the author of the book, an anonymous author, whoever wrote the book of Job, we don't know who did it, drops in a glorious chapter, chapter 28 on wisdom. And we heard that read a little earlier uh, in our service just a few moments ago. And so we get this, this chapter that says wisdom cannot be found in the depths of the earth or the sky or the sea or anywhere else. It's found only in God and in the fear of God. It's something that we talked about last week. Well, then we come to chapter 29. And guess what? It's more lament. And for three chapters, we hear Job scream at God for all that he's doing and the pain that he is enduring. And he loudly proclaims his innocence. At this point, you would expect God to step in. Enough. Time out. You've had it. My turn. And you wait, we're waiting for God to vindicate Job or to destroy him. We've had enough. Step in, please, God. But he doesn't. And we have one more round of accusations to go. Here we go again. And it comes from a young man at the edge of the circle, a guy by the name of Elihu. His name means, my God is Yahweh. We would expect some really good stuff from him. And he rebukes the three wisdom guys. He rebukes Job, basically calls them a bunch of windbags. And he does make some good points but he's stuck on his own piety. He actually says, be assured that my words are not false. One perfect in knowledge is with you. Wow, who says that? But I guess Elihu did. 
And he actually does not add a lot to what has already been said, and he's full of his own self-righteousness. Finally, finally, we get to chapter 38, and God steps in. We call it the theophany, the revelation of God, the invasion of God. And he demands that all of them recognize that he is sovereign over creation and the world. God asks, where were you when I created the world, the oceans, the Pleiades, the Orion, the thunderstorm, the snowstorm, Leviathan, Behemoth, and more? He asks, who then is able to stand against me? Who has claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. And we have sung a couple of songs that kind of emphasize that, some great choices of songs that we sang earlier in the service. And twice Job repents, and the second time in dust and ashes. But we need to understand that Job's repentance is not because of sin, but because of his unworthiness and inadequacy to understand God's sovereign and free workings in the world. And I think a better word for repent, I repent in dust and ashes, probably a better, a better term would be recant. And he, he, he recants his inadequate vision of God and himself, and he submits to the freedom and the sovereignty and the sovereign will of God. Well, that brings us to the end of the book in chapter 2, verse 47, chapter 42, verse 7, and we come back to Job speaking to, or God speaking to Job, and he rebukes the foolishness of the three friends, and by the way, he doesn't even mention Elihu, which I think is interesting, and he vindicates Job restores his family and fortunes and shows particular generosity. I don't know whether you noticed this when you read it, but he shows particular generosity to Job's daughters. which have some really cool names. Karen Hapuk, which, by the way, means jar of eye paint. Hmm. Any Karens in the group? All right, here we go. All right, fascinating. But he shows special favor to Job's daughters. And the book ends with God calling Job his servant four times. And as I said, one of the highest commendations that anyone can receive from the mouth of God. So that's kind of the story. So how is the book put together? Now, I'm, I'm going to put a, uh, an outline on the, on the slide behind me, and I'm going to walk through it very quickly. But basically what I've just done is walk through this outline and I think this is what really makes the book work. So the book starts with this prose setting in chapters 1 and 2. It's not poetry, it's prose. And this is where we get God, Job, Satan, uh, Job's wife. Uh, and, and it's the backdrop to the whole thing. But Job doesn't know what's going on. Everything that happens to him is set in this backdrop of God and Satan, but he will not ever know that, in fact, this is what's the setting to the whole thing. So that gets us going. That's chapters 1 and 2. Then we come into uh, the book, which is primarily poetry, and I call it the poetic main section, chapters 3 through 42, verse 6. And then we'll go back to the prose section at chapter 42, verse 7. So begins with story, ends with story, but has all this poetic stuff in the middle. 
And he starts with uh, the lament. The first poem is that lament poem. Why, 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 why? Why was I not stillborn? Why didn't I not die? A person in the grave is at much better peace than I am right now. It is angry, vociferous, passionate, poignant, powerful. So he starts with that lament. Well, that brings on the speeches by his three buddies, all right, Elihu, Bildad, and Zophar, and around and around and around they go, and as I said, Zophar quits after two. He hasn't got anything more to say. Then the, the, the wisdom poem invades in chapter 28, which we had read, but it's interesting because you would have expected after that wisdom poem, God to now invade and say, where were you? when I did all this stuff. But it, 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 does, it doesn't. It goes back to lament. And I think that is fascinating. He begins with lament, all those dialogues, Job 28, the, the poem on wisdom, and then back to lament. And this is telling me something. This is telling me that, in fact, to cry out to God when things are not going well, and especially when we don't get it, is part of wisdom. It's part of piety. It is part of spirituality. And we're called to pray those passionate, poignant prayers that Job, as God's servant, sets the pattern for us. Then we get good old Elihu. <laughs> I think he's my favorite character. But boy, I get annoyed at him because he's so self-righteous. But he's got a lot of good theology, and unfortunately, a lot of th good theologians are self-righteous. Not this one. Never, ever. <laughs> but he's full of piety and full of self-righteousness. And then finally, in Job 38, God says, okay, enough, my turn. Where were you when I did all this stuff? And uh, as a result, Job repents of dust and ashes, recognizing of his, his inadequacy, not his sinfulness, but his inadequacy to recognize who God is and who he is in the scheme of things. The book ends then with that another prose section. You've got a prose at the beginning, prose at the end, narrative at the beginning and end, all the poetry in the middle. And then it comes back to the last few verses at the end of chapter 42, where Job is vindicated and restored and called his servant four times. So that's kind of how the book goes. There's your overview. There's your survey, something that would take me two hours in a, theo in a class at Heritage to do. You got this in 20 minutes. Yeah. So what do we learn from the book? What are some things that we need to think about and take away? And I said that the Bible basically answers three questions. The Bible answers the questions, who is God? Who are we as the people of God? And what is the world? So, what do we learn about God? What, are the, what, what is it that we take away from this book that we learn about God? And the first thing that I think is really important, and I noted that at the beginning because I talked about the fact that we have the sovereignty and the freedom of God in actually developing and having this confrontation with Satan, and as a result, God giving Satan over to Job to do his will other than to kill him. And so the first thing we learn about God is that he is sovereign and free to bring about his will in the ways he deems appropriate. 
Even in taking on a cosmic confrontation with Satan, he is free to work his surprises and not tell us what is happening by the, behind the scenes. And he's free not to answer Job's question, why? God never answers Job's questions. Never does. He answers the question, why, with who? And he says, I am God. I am the creator. I am sovereign. I am free to work out my will and ways in the way that I choose. And so while the book is about suffering, and certainly that's the matrix in which all this happens, it's much more than this. It is a book that teaches wisdom in the interface of God's freedom in his workings in the world, and sometimes the freedom of God's workings in the world is difficult for us as God is working out his plan. Second thing we learn about God, not only is he sovereign and free, but he's also patient. He's patient with Job, patient with the three friends, although he gets pretty vociferous, God does at the end. But he allows this to go on and on and on and on. But then he gets pretty confrontive at the end, and that's when he starts off by saying, brace yourself like a man. Where were you, right? But ultimately, he is gracious and merciful to his faithful ones. And he was even gracious and merciful to Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad, along with Job at the end of the book. So he's patient. And I think the third thing that we learn about God is that God is evident, said by, said by Job, but God is a, is a redeemer that gives life and that lives and that there's a resurrection rooted in this redeemer that lives. I know that my redeemer lives and there will be a day when I will stand and I will see him from my flesh. This is one of the earliest affirmations of a resurrection and a living redeemer that someday we as God's people will see. And so Job is a person of faith and he roots his worldview in that faith and we learn that God is a redeemer that lives. What do we learn about ourselves in the book of Job? And the first thing I think that struck me as I was reading it through again was this. When suffering, the natural conclusion is that we are being punished for sin. And you know, the three friends, as they went round and round and round on this, along with Elihu, yeah, ah, this is often where I would go. I'm not surprised by any of that, right? It's... it's uh, it's a natural conclusion, but it is inadequate. God may well be putting us through difficulty because of sin. That may very well be true. But inevitably, it is more likely that he's putting us through hard times in order to reveal his glory. Remember the man born blind in the New Testament, Jesus and his disciples? Remember that? And the man born blind, and, and, and the disciples said, who sinned? Was it him or his parents? You know, and Jesus' comment was, neither. 
but simply for that my glory may be demonstrated, right? And even the disciples didn't get Job, because I'm sure they read it. And they hadn't even learned what Job was all about. So we learn about ourselves, that sometimes the natural conclusions that we come to, that when we are struggling, when it seems that we're, we're under, the, under the thumb of difficult circumstances, that we're being punished for sin, and that's not inevitably the case. The second thing I learn about ourselves is we learn that lament is crucial for wisdom. To cry out to God and cry why is part of it all. But we also need to know that we may not get the answer to why, but inevitably we will get an answer of who. Here I am. I am sovereign. I am free to do what needs to be done to bring glory to myself and to bring my plan of redemption to pass. The answer out of the whirlwind will be, I am God. Another thing that we learn is that, and this is really helpful as well to me, in the book of Job, I've learned that we can have both struggle and faith at the same time. You know, it's often said, we need to learn to feel two almost opposite things at once, and it's true. Struggle and faith are two sides of the same coin. Job is a person of faith. He boldly asserts that he knows his Redeemer lives. He even has hope of some kind of resurrection, but he laments deeply where he is and in his struggle. And he rails against the false accusations of his three buddies that somehow he deserves what he's getting because of sin. Another thing that I learned about myself is that many times I need to be reduced to repentance. Many times I need to be reduced to I repent in dust and ashes. That when I am confronted with the majesty and power and glory of God, even as we read in Psalm 93 to begin the service today, that occasionally and more than occasionally, often, I need to be dropped to my knees and simply say, I repent. I recant. I am so inadequate in my understanding of who you are and how you work in the world. God is a God of wonders and power, more than we can comprehend, more than we can't comprehend, which is an interesting way of saying it. Then one last thing that I learned from this whole thing is we learned that our response to God and in all things is to be engaged in what we call the fear of the Lord. To put God at the center of our orbits. Remember that from last week? Remember I talked about the fear of the Lord as we put, so often we are, we are at the center of our orbits and God, and God is in orbit around us. And we've got all the God talk. God answers our prayer. God showed up. God, God did this. God did that. And we, we, but the problem is we're at the center of the orbit. God is there to serve us. And that's called an anthrocentric worldview. Human-centered. 
But the fear of the Lord says, no, you put God at the center of that orbit. We are in orbit around him. And it's his glory, his mission, his values, his purposes, his morality, his ethics that become embracing for what we need to be. And we, we develop what's called a theocentric worldview. And that's another way of saying living in the fear of the Lord. So we learn about God, we learn about ourselves, and then we learn about the world. What is it that we learn about the world from the book of Job? And basically I would say that, so the book of Job, the friends and Elihu are the world. The world has God and his actions all wrong. It thinks in terms of cause and effect. It is a source of easy answers and a condemning spirit when in fact it does not and cannot account for a God that is beyond anything that we can fully understand. Another thing I learned about the world from the book of Job is God created it. <laughs> Where were you when I created all that, right? He is the one who created all things. He created the Pleiades and the Orion. He is the one who holds all things together. He is the one that, in fact, around whom all things consist. And so when we see a thunderstorm, when we see the stars, when we see the oceans, when we see the wonder of nature and wildlife, we refer it all back to God in worship and awe. So where do we go from here? What do we take away? I would suggest, first of all, that we have a fresh vision revealed of God revealed in Jesus Christ. Yes, we have a God who is sovereign and powerful and patient and not confrontive. And we learn that living in the fear and awe of God is truly what it is to be wise. But we need to understand that that God has been revealed to us in Jesus Christ. And when Paul spoke in Colossians about the God that holds all things together and in whom all things consist, who was he talking about? He was talking about none other than Jesus of Nazareth. You know who spoke out of the whirlwind? You know who spoke to Job and said, where were you when? It was none other than Christ himself. And I believe that Theophany was, in fact, our Savior, Jesus Christ, speaking as the second person of the Trinity before actually being revealed in the incarnation as such. And so I have this new and fresh vision, not only of God, but the God, but the Jesus of Nazareth, who in fact reveals that God and who is the word of God and is the voice of God in the world today. And all of a sudden, my vision of Christ completely transforms. And I realize as I'm reading Job 38 and beyond, I'm seeing, seeing Jesus. I'm seeing Christ. And by the way, that's one of the things I'm going to talk, to, uh, talk about at this, with the students on Friday at the uh, Power to Change gathering. We see Christ. Second thing that I go away with from this book is that we leave comforted. When we go through hard times, the first conclusion is not that we are being judged for sin. It may be, 
And yes, God disciplines his own. But more often than not, it is as Jesus spoke to his disciples. No, it was not for the sin of that person or the parents. It is simply that my glory may be revealed. And this brings comfort to me. We are part of a story that is so much bigger than ourselves. The story that we don't know what is fully going on. But somehow, in some way, even in our struggle, it is moving the story forward that will allow us to see our God in our resurrected state. And we are called to endurance. James, one of the times that Job has been referred to elsewhere in scripture, writes this. Indeed, we are called blessed those who have shown endurance. You have heard of the endurance of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. We are comforted. We are comforted in the mercy and compassion of God. There's a picture, there's a a plan going on way bigger than than ourselves. We see Job enduring, and we are blessed when we, in fact, endure like Job does. And we leave today comforted, knowing that as steadfast sufferers, we are held in the arms of a God of purpose, freedom, and compassion. Another reason why I leave comforted this morning, and I've mentioned this before, but we are given that voice in our dark times. That voice of lament, piercing and passionate. Yes, a voice of faith in the midst of lament. We know that our Redeemer lives. Yes, we know there's final vindication coming. That umpire will stand and will judge correctly. But right now, maybe we're not feeling it. And I would suggest that that is true spirituality. It is truly what it is to be called God's servant. Another thing I take away as I leave this morning, and I hope you will as well take similar kinds of things away, I find this book to be life-shaping and life-giving. When I read Job, I find my worldview shaped one more time, that God must be at the center of my world and, and in myself in orbit around him. I cannot speak. I, 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 am, I recant in dust and ashes, and it is out of wonder and awe that I speak those words. And I put God at the heart of my life, and my life is now reshaped, restructured. But I'm also given life. It is also life-shaping and life-giving. I'm renewed in life. My Redeemer lives. We now know that, that now that reality in a resurrected Jesus, we sang of that. My sufferings and struggles are not the end of it all. Resurrection awaits. I will one day see my Redeemer out of my own eyes. Amen. Anywhere on that one? Okay. And there will be an umpire that will judge fairly, justly, and mercifully. Ultimate vindication or restoration is in my future. I'm given life. 
Perhaps not until the next life. But in my journey of faith and doubt, lament and praise, confidence and not so confident, I can be called God's servant, even as Job was. So how do we respond to all this? I dare not prescribe a response for you. I cannot do that. I conclude with reading the final verses of Job 28. God understands the way to wisdom, and he alone knows where it dwells. For he views the ends of the earth, and he sees everything under the heavens. When he established the force of the wind and measured out the waters, when he made a decree for the rain and a path for the thunderstorm, that he looked at, then he looked at wisdom and appraised it, and he confirmed it and tested it, and he said to the human race, the fear of the Lord. God in the center of our orbits. That is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. How do we respond to all this? I can't prescribe that for you. And I trust that God's Holy Spirit will take this book and some of the things I've said about it and work in our lives through the power of the Spirit. You know, those of us who are believers in this room, and most of us are, we hear the book in faith. We embrace all the truths and truth found there. We are challenged to make those truths inform how we live in the fear of the Lord. And I would say to some who may be among us who are still exploring and wondering and even challenging, the whole business about being a Christian, coming into the faith that we call Christian, and I am convinced that God's Spirit is active in your life as well and is the one who is nudging you along or even perhaps being here in your journey toward faith. And the message and challenge of this book is part of that nudging. It's a tough book for us all, even as I quoted those scholars at the beginning of the, of the sermon. And so I guess I encourage all of us to be as open as we can be to what we are hearing from this amazing book on wisdom. And we hear the voice of God from the whirlwind speaking wisdom. That wisdom who is not just spoken by Christ, but is embodied in Christ. So, what's your assignment? Next week, read the book of Proverbs. That's what's coming next. All right, this is what this series is about. So, I will also... Uh, ask all of you if you have read it. I will look for a show of hands. You will not be allowed to leave until you have read it. <laughs> in my notes in my college introduction to the Old Testament class, I write this about the conclusion about Job. A conclusion uh, about the book of Job. This, this is a conclusion I write. The book of Job is one of the most difficult books of all the Bible to read, stay with it, and then preach and teach. But it captures some of the most important issues of life and life with God. The church would do well to sit with Job, listen to the conversations, interact with those conversations, scream at God and the friends with Job, get frustrated with the narrow vision of all four friends, and then get bowled over by the invasion of God. This may go a long way to crafting good therapy, but more than that, good theology that leads us to being called God's servant. God bless you all.